Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. If you like this podcast, you're going to really like McClanahan Academy. Head over to McClanahanAcademy.com. That's McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll. It's free of charge. You get a free class, 10 Myths of American History. When you do enroll, I've got nearly 20 classes there available for purchase. Go to McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll today and get a real history education. Brian McClanahan Show, episode 476. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to the Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to be back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter and like my Facebook page and subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast. You can find all those social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B-R-I-O-N, mcclanahan.com. While you're there, give me that email address. I'll give you a free ebook, free audiobook, Forgotten Founders. Audiobook is read by yours truly. You can support the show by going to McClanahan Academy, which you heard about before this podcast began. You can click on that support tab at brianmcclanahan.com, or you can click on that shop tab at brianmcclanahan.com. Get some cool stuff my logo and all kinds of cool things. You can buy my books. I've got nine of those. So those are always a great way to support the show. Get your, uh, go to Learn True History, I should say. Learn True History, T-R-U-E is my fiddle link for Tom Woods Liberty Classroom, another great way to support the show. So you've got educational websites, mclanahanacademy.com. That's the best way to support the show. You get great content and uh, you support the show as well. And I mean, look, the classes are phenomenal. Uh, but you can do it in other ways. And, of course, you can always share the podcast around on social media, rate it where you get your podcast. That's a great way to support the show, too. Let people know you're thinking locally and acting locally. All right, so I mentioned yesterday that this week we're getting into history. And uh, we're talking a lot about 1776. So I did the Constitution on Monday. Today we're going to talk about a piece by Cameron Hilditch at National Review. Cameron Hilditch, I've done a couple of different episodes on Cameron Hilditch. He's our resident Irishman who wants to lecture Americans on what it means to be an American. And he's completely wrong. I mean, the, the young guy just doesn't really have a clue about what he's talking about. And that's the sad thing because he's at National Review, so he has this pretty loud megaphone because he's there. And Cameron Hilditch is completely clueless. Now, he's a Jaffaite of the worst kind. In fact, in this piece I'm going to go over today, he quotes Harry Jaffa. Anytime you quote Jaffa, you're completely misguided as to what American conservatism is and what American conservatism isn't. But just like many of the other people at National Review and some of the other neocons, he has a real uh, problem with the Confederacy because he looks at it as the antithesis of America, that somehow these people were distorting the American experience by seceding and forming their own government. Again, Hilditch has no clue about what he's talking about. But I'm going to go over this piece, and then I'm going to talk about where he really is incorrect. Right? So, I mean, one of the times that I did a piece on Hilditch, somebody whined about it, saying that I was, 
I had too many personal attacks on Hillary. So I'm, I'm going to avoid that. I've already done all that. And I'll go straight into the issues here where Hilditch is completely off base. Now, the title of this piece is How July 4th Threatened the Confederacy. How July 4th Threatened the Confederacy. And the image is Abraham Lincoln and the Lincoln Memorial. The real threat to the Confederacy was not July 4th, but Abraham Lincoln and his distorted vision of America. And so that is the issue here. But in, in, in fact, Hilditch based the entire piece essentially on a Lincolnian understanding of the Union. So he says, One of the most regrettable developments of the summer in the United States is the way in which certain commentators have tried to pit the spirit of Juneteenth against the spirit of July 4th, as if the two were in tension with one another. In fact, they are not. The essential concord that exists between the two holidays has been pointed out by other writers who stress that the final extirpation of slavery, excuse me, extirpation of slavery on Juneteenth was a follow-through on the promises and principles of July 4th, not a repudiation of them. But in fact, the events of July 4th, 1776, relate to the demise of slavery on these shores in a much more specific and technical way than this true but simple narrative of straightforward prophecy and fulfillment suggests. Like many commentators on the far left and far right today, the Confederate secessionists of the 1860s insisted that the United States of America did not come into being as a nation on July 4, 1776. Well, let me stop there. The United States of America didn't come into being as a nation on July 4, 1776. In fact, it was the exact opposite of that. I mean, this is where Hilditch doesn't even... His concept of what happened on July 4, 1776... It's so far out there, it doesn't even make any sense historically. You see, there was no nation on July 4, 1776. And the founding generation made that clear. There was no nation on July 4, 1776. Not one existed. You had 13 independent, free and independent states as the Declaration of Independence in the final paragraph clearly pointed out. In fact, the first paragraph, even, is a discussion of secession. When in the course of human events it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another, and to assume among the powers of the earth a separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and nature and nature's God and laws of nature and nature's God entitle them. Right? So this is a secession document. What we're doing here is seceding from the British Empire. Not as a unit, but as 13 sovereign, free, and independent states, as the state of Great Britain, which each state was recognized independently. There was no national government in 1776. There was really no national government even in 1788, as, he start, as he's going to get into here in a second. There was no national government there. In fact, it was argued that way. So he says their preferred date of birth for the Union was June 21st, 1788, when the Constitution became the official framework of government for the United States. Well, there's no birth even then. The United States was already there. We had a new governing document for the United States, but there's no birth of America. The rebels had... The rebels 
the rebels had compelling contemporary polemical reasons for arguing that the United States had come into being when the Constitution was ratified rather than when independence was declared. But you see, they didn't do this. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you direct evidence that they didn't do this. In fact, from one of the most important members of the rebels, <laughs> since we're going to use that term, of the rebels, during the 1850s, they could feel the walls of national electoral consensus closing in on slavery, their peculiar sectional institution. Well, not really. I mean, if you look at the amount of people that voted against, if you're just going to say Lincoln was a anti-slavery candidate, if we're just going to take that position, then 60% of the people rejected that. So were the electoral walls closing in on slavery in 1860? No. In the 1850s, were they closing in on slavery? No. They weren't at all. The issue was the extension of slavery in the territories, which most Americans were willing to accept within limits. This is the whole point. There was no electoral walls closing on slavery at all. Not in 1850s. Not in 1860. In fact, 60% of the population, again, if you want to say Lincoln was an anti-slavery candidate, then 60% of the population was against Lincoln. Actually, close to 61%. That's a pretty crushing majority against the anti-slavery position. So were the electoral walls closing in on slavery in 1860 or the 1850s? John C. Calhoun, along with the other intellectual progenitors of the Confederacy. Well, see, Calhoun wasn't that. Again, his history is so stupid. Calhoun was a unionist up until the day he died in 1850. Uh, that's a long time before we get the Confederacy, a decade before we get the Confederacy. And Calhoun had been opposed. To, in fact, the secessionists in South Carolina didn't like John C. Calhoun because he was opposed to secession. Needed an authoritative constitutional precedent that would authorize secession and secure a future for human bondage in the South. Well, it was already there. In fact, Lincoln was willing to let it stay, even in 1860. He, didn't, he wasn't arguing against slavery in the South. Now, you could say that Southerners recognized that if they closed off slavery, then eventually slavery would end in the South. And there was certainly an argument made for that. But it would take decades. Decades. It wasn't going to happen overnight. In fact, Lincoln himself was willing to let slavery exist until at least the 1890s. He said it. In his proposal for compensated emancipation in Delaware, well, let's just let's just keep this until the 1890s. We'll we'll work out a way to have slavery somehow end, and uh, in a way that makes it to where these people can be integrated into society, or we can just send them back to Africa. We can we can look at different ways to do this, right? We'll figure out some way to deal with this, but let's end the institution over time, gradually. The diminishment of July 4th as the date of the nation's founding turned out to be an indispensable revisionist move in order to make the argument for secession. But that's not what they said. In fact, that's not what they said at all. They talked about July 4th, quite a lot in fact, and they pointed to it as a reason why they didn't need a declaration of independence. In fact, they said it. But let's continue with Hilditch, and then I'll get into that. To understand why July 4th was so threatening to the Confederates, one really has to understand how they made this constitutional argument for secession. So then he tries to give you an argument what Southerners made for the constitutionality of secession, but he really doesn't make the argument. Because again, he really doesn't know what he's talking about. 
The Confederate argument for the constitutionality of secession centers upon Article 8 of the Articles of Confederation. I'm sorry, Article 13, excuse me, of the Articles of Confederation, which uh, preceded the Constitution as the governing document of the United States, and Article 7 of the Constitution itself. Here they both are, side by side. Article 13 of the Articles of Confederation. And the articles of this confederation shall be invaluably observed by every state, and the union shall be perpetual, nor shall any alteration any time hereafter be made in any of them, unless such alteration be agreed to in a Congress of the United States, and afterwards confirmed by the legislature of every state. Article 7 of the Constitution of 1787. The ratification of the conventions of nine states shall be sufficient for the establishment of this constitution between the states so ratifying the same. Article 13 of the Articles clearly states that the union enshrined in that document cannot be altered without the unanimous consent of all 13 state legislatures. But Article 7 of the Constitution claims that the ratification of nine states suffice to make the new governing document operative. Since no provision is made in the Articles for nine states to alter the nature of the union without the consent of the other four, the Constitution of 1787 clearly affects a new union, rather than simply altering or renovating the old one. Therefore, the nine states that ratified the Constitution must have seceded from the Articles of Confederation, dissolving the old union and forming a new one. The rebels of 1860 were not claiming any more rights for themselves than were ex exercised by the founders in 1787 when Madison, Jefferson, and company dissolved another pre-existing union without unanimous consent and proceeded to forge a new one. Now, first of all, Jefferson wasn't even involved in this. He wasn't at Philadelphia. He wasn't in the ratifying convention. He did have some letters that people talked about in the Virginia ratifying convention that Jefferson approved the new document with amendments, but certainly he wasn't part of this new document in 1787 in any way. So here, Kilditch doesn't even know what he's talking about. This is how the Confederate argument ran. For secession to be legit legitimate in 1860, the American Union must be dated to June 21, 1788, and no earlier. But that's not true at all, because that's not what they said. The Union could be dated earlier than that, and we did have a Union before that. But this argument that they did secede from the Articles, I mean, that's a pretty strong argument. Because what would happen to the states that didn't ratify the Constitution? This was discussed. They would be independent, free and independent states, just as they were before the <laughs> at, at independence, right? I mean, this is what they were. Rhode Island would have been that. North Carolina would have been that. In fact, both were. And if New York didn't ratify or Virginia didn't ratify, this is what they would have been. This was openly discussed. In fact, when you look at the landholder essays by Oliver Ellsworth, he addressed, and I get into this in my originalist papers, he addressed one to New Hampshire and one to Rhode Island, where he essentially argues that these two states, New Hampshire didn't ratify the document until June, and this is the June 21st, until June of 1788. And his argument was, if you don't ratify the document, you are going to be an independent state, and therefore you are going to be left open to invasion. So they were independent states. And this new government was a new governing document for the United States. It did violate the Articles of Confederation, clearly. So we have free and independent states. Being able to do what free and independent states can do, which is alter or abolish their existing systems of government and form a new one, which is in the Declaration of Independence, by the way. And this is the exact argument the Southerners were making in 17, I'm sorry, in 1860 and 61 as well. There's nothing different here. But, Hilditch says, 
opposed to this line of reasoning was Abraham Lincoln, because you see Abraham Lincoln is just all-wise and all-knowing, who argued that the United States of America was born on July 4, 1776. Unfortunately for the Confederates, where constitutionality was concerned, Lincoln had Madison and Jefferson on his side. No, he didn't. Not at all. On March 4, 1825, the Board of Visitors at the University of Virginia adopted a series of resolutions that had been worked out and agreed upon by the two great Virginians in writing. The resolutions reaffirmed that on the distinctive principles of the government of our state and that of these United States, the best guides are to be found in one, the Declaration of Independence as the foundational act of union of these states. Both Jefferson and Madison expressly endorsed the notion of the Declaration of Independence is the foundational act of union of these states. But was it? No. Not at all. And there's so much evidence against this. So, Hilditch's gotcha moment is that Jefferson and Madison said that the foundational act of union was the Declaration of Independence. Was it, though? Did anyone really believe we had a union at that point? No. Which is why we had an Articles of Confederation. <laughs> because... There was no union because of the Declaration. Now, certainly, uh, there was a consistent effort to fight the British based on the Act of Declaration, uh, Act of Declaration of Independence. There was certainly that. So then he says this, How then did Lincoln and the founders answer the charge of discrepancy between the Articles of Confederation and the Constitution upon which the Confederacy, Confederates built their case for secession? Madison answers this question directly in Federalist Number 43. Concerning the relationship between the states that would ratify the Constitution and the states that wouldn't, he writes that, quote, In general, it may be observed that although no political relation can subsist between the assenting and the dissenting states, yet the more relations will remain uncancelled. The claims of justice, both on one side and on the other, will be enforced and must be fulfilled. The rights of humanity must, in all cases, be duly and mutually respected. But you see, if you look at the entirety of the ratification debates, it wasn't just Madison that discussed this issue, as I just mentioned. Others did as well. And they pointed out that these states that didn't ratify were not in the Union at all. And Federalist 43 can very easily be read in a way of saying that, yeah, you're not in the Union if you don't ratify the document. We would have some obligations to each other, but you're not in the Union. Madison also draws a distinction between political relations between the states on the one hand, which are contingent upon circumstances which may, be, which may fluctuate throughout the years, and moral relations on the other, which were established by the Union of July 4, 1776. There's no Union of July 4, 1776. It says clearly in the last paragraph of that document. He writes further that the anticipation of a speedy triumph of the obstacles to reunion, which the moral union of the 13 states preceding positive law will bring, help to bring about eventually in positive law. Reunion. In other words, they're not in the Union. They're not in the Union. Eventually they would be if they ratified the document, but they weren't if they didn't, and everyone recognized that. In other words, it was the position of Madison, Jefferson, and Lincoln that the United States of America came into being on July 4, 1776, and a shared affirmation of the principles outlined in the Declaration of Independence, and that while the constitutional scaffolding might go through various per, uh, permutations throughout the years, the nation itself remained continuous from that initial July 4th throughout. There's no nation. In fact, they talked about that. There's no nation. There's no national government. There's no nothing. It wasn't even a national government when we get the Constitution. A corollary of this view is that 
The recourse to secession is unconstitutional, absent the violation of the fundamental principles outlined in the Declaration. No, that's not a corollary to that view. That's something you're making up. That's something Lincoln made up. Something you're making up. There can be no recourse from ballots to bullets, so long as the principles of the Declaration, fleshed out by a constitutional framework that honors its claims, remain inviolate by the federal government. The perpetual union of these states was, for Lincoln and for the founders, founded on the proposition that all men are created equal. Here we go. For they are endowed by the Creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and truth, and happiness. That not only the constitutional instrument that exists solely to make the vision of the Declaration a living reality, as Harry Joffa writes, of course, because Harry Joffa writes it, so it has to be true. Lincoln's argument for the indissolubility of the Union depended upon the premise that it was formed not by the Constitution or by the Articles, but on the event of July 4, 1776. This is James Wilson. You see, but James Wilson was rebuffed. Throughout the founding period, nobody believed James Wilson. And in fact, when James Wilson goes to Philadelphia, the Nationalists go to Philadelphia in 1776, 1787, excuse me, and they start talking about this nation. That's explicitly rejected. I mean, explicitly, we are not forming a national government at all. There's no nation. Without his assumption, the argument against secession as a constitutional right does indeed fall to the ground. No, it doesn't. That is why Calhoun's reformulation of the doctrine of states' rights had as necessary, if necessary foundation the denial of any authority to July 4, 1776, but it didn't. For Calhoun, the date was the occasion for the independence of 13 separate not United States, which at that moment became as legally independent of one another as of Great Britain. But that was true, because we know there were 13 treaties between the 13 states. There's no national government form. See, this is Harry Jaffa making stuff up based on Lincoln's fabricate. Hey, great political discovery. I found that we had a union in 1776. No, we didn't. We didn't have any of that. No one in the founding period really believed that, except for someone like James Wilson. And that was about it. We are so used to hearing President Lincoln's words, fourscore and seven years ago our fathers brought forth in this continent a new nation conceived in liberty. That we forget the polemical heft as it relates to the intellectual question of secession's legitimacy. That nation, that the nation was born fourscore and seven years ago was precisely what the rebels denied. Well, no, it's because it's there was no national government. That it was dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal, and not simply to easily dissolve compact of convenience between 13 autonomous states, flew in the face of that their reading of the nation's history. But this is what it was. And in fact, they talked about July 4th. It wasn't... It wasn't an enemy. It was the basis on which their entire position rested. So when Hilditch says how July 4th threatened the Confederacy, no, no, no. It's how, it should be how Abraham Lincoln's distortion of history threatened the Confederacy. July 4th was certainly part of what they believed. In fact, the Jeffersonians did believe that July 4th was an important day. The Federalists tended to celebrate George Washington's birthday, but they did believe July 4th. They believed it because it was Independence Day, not as a nation, but as 13 separate states. Jefferson called Virginia his country, not the United States at all. In fact, when he was asked, can you tell us about the United States? He said, I can tell you something about my country, Virginia, and this is why he wrote the notes in the state of Virginia. That's what he wrote about, not the United States. 
didn't know anything about New England. Lincoln's understanding of July 4th as the date of the nation's founding provided him with the intellectual and rhetorical springboard. No, no. Rhetorical is most, not intellectual, because it's not intellectual, it's anti-intellectual. Rhetorical, yes. To justify the salvation of the Union, both to his contemporaries and to posterity. But also allowed him to throw down the anchor of July 4th further into the depths of the nation's strife than had the founders in 1787, and to pull up with it Americans who had been held in bondage for centuries. So in other words, Lincoln's inventing something here. I mean, Hildreth essentially admits it right there. Lincoln invents something in 1787. The founders didn't even conceptualize of this. Yeah, because there was no national government. They said as much. It matters that the United States was born of the 4th of July, not only because it really was, but because the conviction that it was cleansed this country of the most grievous sin and still propels it further up and further into an ever more perfect union characterized by life, liberty, and pursuit. I mean, this, this is just rhetorical nonsense. So let me get into where I say that Southerners actually anchored, they did anchor the cause of secession on the Declaration. I'm going to go to Robert Toombs of Georgia. Robert Toombs. November 13th, 1860. Now, Toombs did talk about how closing off slavery to the territories would be a threat to slavery in the states itself. He did say that in November of 1860. And if you get the excerpts of the speech, that's generally all you're going to get about it. They cut out the first part of it because it blows apart the entire argument that the entire Confederacy was based on the cornerstone of slavery and race. Because this is what he says in the first part of the speech. Gentlemen of the General Assembly, this is November 13, 1860. I very much regret in appearing before you at your request to address you on the present state of the country and the prospect before us that I can bring you no good tidings. We have not sought this conflict. Speaking of the South, we have sought too long to avoid it. Our forbearance has been construed into weakness, our magnanimity, magnanimity into fear until the vindication of our manhood as well as the defense of our rights is required at our hands. The door of conciliation and compromise is finally closed by our adversaries, and it remains only to us to meet the conflict with the dignity and firmness of men worthy of freedom. We need no declaration of independence. That was his line. We need no declaration of independence. Why? And he answers, Above 84 years ago, our fathers won that by the sword from Great Britain, and above 70 years ago, Georgia, with the 12 other Confederates, as free, sovereign, and independent states, having perfect governments already in existence, for purposes and objects solely uh, clearly expressed, excuse me, and with powers clearly defined, erected a common agent for the attainment of these purposes by the existence of these powers, and called this agent the United States of America. So, think about what he just said here. 84 years ago, which was 1776, Right? 1776. Because he's saying this in 1860. So at 1776, they won independence. And above 70 years ago, okay, so then he's pointing to above 70 years, so 12 years after that, 1788. He is pointing back to the Constitution. But he's saying here that we need no Declaration of Independence because we already did it. We were free and independent states in 
1776. We were free and independent states in 1788, and we formed this government. So he is going back to 1776 and 1788. And then the language, the basis, the cornerstone of this government was the perfect equality of the free, sovereign, independent states, which made it. That's the cornerstone. They were an unequal in population, wealth, and territorial extent. They had great diversities of interests, pursuits, institutions, and laws, but they had common interests, mainly exterior, which they proposed to protect by this common agent, a constitutional united government, without in any degree subjecting their inequalities and diversities to federal control or action. Well, this is 100% true. I mean, he's not saying anything that's not true. And even if you want to say that 1776, let's just go with a Lincoln argument, that somehow 1776 we get the Union. Well, at that point, there still was no control over then these other things that Toombs just talked about there. And even on the Articles of Confederation, we didn't have that. In the Constitution, we didn't have that. So essentially, if we say, all right, you want to say there's a union created in 1776? What kind of union? Was it a national government? No. Was it a federal government? Yes. Did the states have any control over the other states in 1776? No. The executive department of the federal government for 48 of the first 60 years of the present Constitution was in the hands of southern presidents. No advantage was ever sought or obtained by them for, for their section of the republic. They never sought to use a single one of the powers of the government for the advancement of the local or particular interests of the South, and they left all left office without leaving a single law in the statute book where repeal would have affected injuriously a single industrial pursuit or the business of a single human being in the South. But on the contrary, they had acquiesced in the adoption of a policy in the highest degree beneficial to Northern interests. We can today open wide the history of their administrations and point with pride to every act and challenge the world to point out a single act stained with injustice to the North or with partiality to their own section. This is our record. Let us now examine that that of our Confederates. The instant of the government was organized, the very first Congress of Northern States evinced the general desire and purpose to use it for their own benefit and to pervert its powers for sectional advantage. And they have steadily pursued that policy to this day. They demanded a monopoly on the business of shipbuilding and got a prohibition against the sale of foreign ships to citizens of the United States, which exists to this day. They demanded a monopoly on the coasting trade in order to get higher freights than they could get in the open competition with the carriers of the world. Congress gave it to them. And they yet hold this monopoly. And now today, if a foreign vessel in Savannah offers to take your rice, cotton, grain, or lumber to New York or any other American port for nothing, your laws prohibit it in order that northern ship owners may get enhanced prices for doing your carrying. The same shipping interests with comorbid rapacity have steadily burrowed their way through your legislative halls until they have saddled the agricultural classes with a large portion of the le- legitimate expenses of their own business. We pay a million of dollars per annum for the lights which guide them into and out of your ports. And he gets into this idea of northern laws that benefit the north that the south essentially agreed to. Now, he concludes, he says, well, we are told that secession would destroy the, fair, destroy the fairest fabric of liberty that world ever, the world ever saw and that we are the most prosperous people in the world under it. The arguments of tyranny, as well as its acts, always reenact themselves. The arguments I now hear in favor of this northern connection are identical in substance and almost in the same words as those which were used in 1775 and 1776 to sustain the British connection. We won liberty, sovereignty, and independence by the American Revolution. We endeavored to secure it and perpetuate these blessings by means of our Constitution. 
So he's basically saying here that the 1776 was a point where the states won their independence, their sovereignty and everything, and then they secured it through the Constitution. But now that has been abridged by the North. So he's not denying that July 4th is important. In fact, it's the very basis of secession. This is where Hilditch is completely out of touch. He's clueless. His argument is stupid. His argument is based on a Lincolnian Jaffaite argument, which was stupid at the time. And yet this passes for conservatism. The title of that piece should not be, again, how July 4th, it should be how Lincoln threatened the Confederacy with made-up nonsense. But anyways, somebody asked me to do this. This was a listener-generated episode, so I thought it'd be a good time to talk about this. But certainly July 4th was important to the Confederacy. They just, South, they just thought that they didn't really need another Declaration of Independence because they already had one. And yet, and that was the basis of their free and independent and sovereign states. They had a constitution, which was being, in their mind, violated by the North. From the beginning, as Toombs points out, sectional legislation, which was not the benefit of the Union, but the benefit of the section, that's a violation of the Constitution. And they're using arguments now that were used in 1775 and 1776 for keeping the Union together. So, all that to say that the Hilditch piece is hot garbage and uh, should be read with a laugh and a chuckle rather than any serious contempla uh, contemplation or serious thought. I mean, it's not any of that. So, that's my position on it. We're going to get more 1776 tomorrow. Again, uh, a little different take on some things, but I wanted to cover this Hilditch piece. It's always good podcast fodder. He always writes hilariously stupid stuff. So here we go again. More Kamen, nationalist, Lincolnian, Hilditch, uh, and nonsense, I should say, at the end of that. I'll see you next time on the Brian McClanahan Show. See you then.